Hi, this is John Eldridge, and welcome to the Ransomed Heart podcast. What we are doing over this series is exploring the personality of Jesus from my new book, Beautiful Outlaw. There is absolutely no one and nothing that is more captivating than Jesus when you can see him as he really is. And to know Jesus as he really is, is to fall in love with him. So what we're doing in this series, I am reading some excerpts from a new book called Beautiful Outlaw, discovering the playful, extravagant, disruptive personality of Jesus. And so let's explore Jesus together. A Scandalous Freedom Early on in the fanfare of his public appearances, Jesus gives what will become known as the famous Sermon on the Mount. This is a big moment for Jesus. He has laid out in detail his understanding of a life that pleases God. He has, so to speak, driven a stake in the ground. His star is ascending, crowds are growing, and the religious leaders are watching his every move. Watch what Jesus does next. Large crowds followed Jesus as he came down the mountainside. Suddenly, a man with leprosy approached him and knelt before him. Lord, the man said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. And instantly, the leprosy disappeared. Matthew 8, 1 through 3. Now, it sounds like a very nice Bible story until you understand what Jesus has done. First, this leprosy thing. Few of us have ever met a leper. The word has since become hijacked by the religious haze. We hardly have a reaction to it other than poor guy. So substitute AIDS. Think of the public attitude, especially early in the AIDS crisis, when people were afraid to go to their dentist for fear of catching it somehow. Picture this man, as someone in the late stages of AIDS, emaciated body, nearly bald, wheezing, face ravaged by ulcers. Second, the Jewish attitude toward those infected. Lepers were required to cry out as they passed through a village, unclean, unclean, warning their neighbors lest unwitting citizens accidentally touch them and become religiously defiled themselves. Leviticus 13, 45 and 46 make it clear that the person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes, let his hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of his face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as he has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. Clothed in rags, Bandana over the face, hair dirty and matted? Talk about ostracism. In Israel at that time, to get within a stone's throw of someone so diseased was to jeopardize your own righteousness and reputation. So, that is the danger that Jesus is faced with. The man comes near Jesus, but not too near. And what does Jesus do? He reaches out and touches him. The beauty of this is beyond words. Jesus doesn't need to come in contact with the man in order to heal him. 
There are many accounts where all he does is say the word and people are healed, even people a county away. Yet he touches him. Why? Mark's version of the story says that Jesus was moved with compassion. He who can be so immovable is actually moved rather easily, moved for all the right reasons. Because this is the one thing the man needs. No one has touched him for a very long time. To be starved for human touch is far worse than to starve for bread. The kindness of Jesus in this one act is enough to make me fall in love with him. But so is his scandalous freedom. Because now Jesus is defiled, at least in the eyes of all the proper authorities he is. Jesus is just getting his ministry going. He has a message he needs to get across, for by his own admission, that is why I have come, Mark one thirty eight. Credibility is fairly important at this point, especially given the fact that in this recent tour de force of a sermon, he has begun to challenge cherished notions of the pontifical tyrants. But here, in his very next move, Jesus is almost guaranteeing he will be disqualified. Emotionally, politically, this would be the social equivalent of a rising priest or pastor giving their most important message of the year and then stepping outside onto the front porch of the church, lighting a cigarette, and taking a good long shot of tequila straight from the bottle as the congregation files past. Metaphorically speaking, Jesus doesn't seem to care. Or better, he cares very deeply about the right things. He knows exactly what he's doing. In the Sermon on the Mount, he completely overhauled their understanding of goodness. In a sort of moral Copernican revolution, he moves the concept of righteousness from the external to the internal. It is a far, far more demanding holiness, but one that will overturn legalism like a fruit cart. And then, almost as if to say, let me show you what I mean, we have this story. The risks Jesus is willing to take with his reputation are simply stunning. To give this a proper church contrast, permit me to recount a conversation from a staff meeting held at a church that I worked for many years ago. The several pastors on the payroll assembled each week to hear our directives from the senior pastor. This particular week, he chose alcohol as his topic. The verse he read was from the book of Romans. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine, or to do anything that will cause your brother to fall. Chapter 14, verse 21. And then followed his application. So, we don't want to be seen out there in a restaurant ordering alcohol. You don't want to make a member of our congregation stumble now, do you? What about in our homes? One of the bold and short-termed assistant pastors inquired. Are you comfortable with that? Someone from the congregation might drop by any time unannounced. Well, what if we keep our curtains drawn? You see the ridiculous downward spiral of the conversation. After leading us oh so reverently to the reductio ad absurdum, sneaking a sip of Cabernet late at night with the lights off and the curtains drawn, he then concluded for us it would be a sin to drink as a member of this pastoral team. I wanted to raise my hand and ask if, knowing how many more people in our culture struggle with their weight, 
the principle applied to eating in public as well. I bit my tongue. But it is just this sort of religious rulemaking that takes us right back to the Levitical law. This is the very line of reasoning used to take away the freedom of New Testament Christianity and exchange it for the shackles of a slave, wrapping honest Christians in more chains than Marley's ghost. Down through the ages, the religious have filled the church with this sort of justified legalism. Returning to the risks Jesus is willing to take with his reputation, behold his utter freedom in the famous story of the woman at the well. Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. From John 4, 3 through 9. Slow down. Slow down. Our familiarity with these stories numbs us. What do we have here? Jews despise Samaritans. They don't ever speak to them. As Paul Johnson points out, the Samaritans were hated by the Jews with a sort of quasi-religious fury and a form of local racism of the most ferocious temper. Insert the attitude of Southern whites in the Klan toward blacks in the 1920s. Furthermore, a Jewish man would never speak to a Jewish woman publicly. A rabbi would never, ever speak to a Samaritan woman. One more detail. This woman is sexually loose. She has what used to be called a reputation. She is sexually indiscreet. At a time, that wantonness could get a girl stoned. So, we have a single Jewish man and a single Samaritan woman meeting at a well, alone, against every convention. The man initiates a conversation. What is the girl to think? She's had more than a few drinks bought for her in the past. This encounter is scandalous right from the start. This is a white man asking a black woman for a ride in her car in Birmingham at the height of segregation. Jesus doesn't even hesitate. He is utterly free from those religious and social prejudices disguised as what good people do. He is willing to take what would have been considered fatal risks with his reputation. We'll come back to this story in a minute. Meanwhile, it is with regard to the religious that Jesus seems most radically free. His attitude toward the Sabbath is shocking. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look! Your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath 
the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not condemn the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. From Matthew chapter 12. Jesus' students, his soon-to-be ambassadors, are flagrantly breaking the Sabbath. Jesus defends them. You understand that by this point, the authorities think he is far too dangerous. And he is. In their minds, he is continually breaking the law and encouraging others to do so. They see him as an outlaw. They certainly end up hanging him like one. In order to understand what compels this man, you must keep in mind the distinction between the laws of God and the laws of men. And furthermore, that magnificent difference between the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. Allow me another contrast for clarity. A dear friend attended a Christian college. Part of their agreement required students to attend chapel three times weekly. In addition to this, freshmen were required to join one of the many midweek campus Bible studies. They were also strongly encouraged to become an active member in a local church. Now, this would amount to five religious gatherings per week at a minimum for students who were already in a far richer daily Christian community than 99% of churchgoers and also under daily discipleship from Christian teachers. Now, a word on the Sabbath. When it was established by God in Genesis chapter 2, it was clearly for rest. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work and God blessed the seventh day, and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3. Now, the Jews understood this well. No work was allowed on the Sabbath. Six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during the plowing season and harvest, you must rest. Exodus chapter 34, verse 21. You must rest. Furthermore, Jesus makes clear that the Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around. In other words, we don't serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath serves us. My friend chose not to attend church on Sundays. This was met with frowns and suspicion. He was dismissed as a marginally committed Christian. This is ridiculous, religious activity, drunkenness, gluttony. These students were overloaded with extraordinary demands of study. Daily homework was a millstone hung round their necks, requiring them to labor way into the hours of every night. Sleep deprivation was standard on this campus. If anyone needed a day of rest come Sunday, it was these beleaguered disciples. But rather than lifting the workload on Sunday— the college culture added yet one more duty, thus violating the spirit of the law while pretending to honor it. This is a very mild example of how suffocating religious institutions can become. But they always have their reasons. The leaders of this college will fight for the policies they have created. There's an old joke about why Baptists don't make love standing up 
because people might think they're dancing. It captures the absurdity of legalism beautifully. This measly, picayune, trivial, petty rulemaking actually ends up hardening your heart toward God while stiffening your self-righteousness. No wonder Jesus hates this stuff. Some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. And then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? And Jesus replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, Well, explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them, Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean, but eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. From Matthew chapter 15. You can hear his disgust. Hypocrites, blind guides. Then, as with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sets before us a deeper, truer view of holiness. The issues are first and foremost internal before they are ever external. You can murder someone without ever pulling a trigger. You break the Sabbath if come Sunday night you're exhausted, especially if you've been exhausted by church. Letter and spirit. All those external rules of men do nothing to promote a genuine holiness, but they do make people Pharisees by the truckload. Now, Jesus' freedom is a difficult thing to teach on for many reasons. Let me name two. First, there are certain types who will hear this and find in it an excuse to live as they please. Many characters in our irreverent age don't care what others think. Their freedom is abrasive and unholy. The freedom Jesus models for us is not a crass giving the finger to the world or the church, for that matter. Others will dismiss the freedom that Jesus offers out of fear, either the fear of what people might think, which ironically is a sin, or the fear of falling into immorality. So let me be very clear. The scandalous freedom Jesus models for us is based in an understanding of holiness much deeper than anything the religious has ever concocted. Remember, he said, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.20 
the only possible way that can happen is through an internal revolution, a changed heart, when we have a heart like Jesus's. One more example. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. From Luke chapter 7. Whoa, here is yet another scandalous scene. This fallen woman is wiping Jesus' feet with her hair and kissing them? A very intimate encounter. She obviously has lost her capacity to care what the nice people think. And Jesus, he doesn't seem to have ever bothered trying that capacity on. He is no respecter of persons, not at least as it is with most folks in this world, especially leaders. This is utterly remarkable in the society of the religious, for the fear of man rules that world. What good people might think is a very, very powerful motivator and the reason to tear for most of the ridiculous policies. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man was a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Can you believe the arrogant self-righteousness of these guys? It is a sinner who invited him to dinner. It is a sinner who is running the synagogue, too. Jesus answers patiently this time. Apparently, this Pharisee is open to a new way of understanding goodness. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Now, having rescued Simon from the religious spirit, Jesus turns to attend to the precious heart of this brave woman who has entered so boldly, so humbly. She is exposed to the scornful stares of the other guests. They are whispering loudly. Jesus covers her. And then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. And therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. From Luke chapter 7. 
If you don't understand this scene, you will not understand Christian holiness. And if you don't find this one of the most beautiful stories you have ever heard, you won't want Christian holiness, and you sure won't understand Jesus. The man is free, free from what people think, free from religion, free from false obligation. People won't like it, won't understand it. They'll draw false conclusions, point fingers, and worse. He is free from that as well. Oh, to be so free. The more you fall in love with Jesus's genuine goodness, which is true goodness, the more you will absolutely detest the counterfeit of a false piety and a shallow morality, as he did. Jesus has a wild freedom born out of a profound holiness, which makes him the most remarkable person I have ever known. As Dorothy Sayers wrote, to do them justice, the people who crucified Jesus did not do so because he was a bore. Quite the contrary, he was too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for the later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. I hope that you have been enjoying these excerpts from Beautiful Outlaw, my new book about Jesus, as much as I've been enjoying reading them to you. And we've got more exciting news. We are offering a live Beautiful Outlaw event, broadcast free, online, over the internet, Monday evening, November 14th. This is a fantastic way for your church or your home group or just a group of friends to get together and share this message. It's a free simulcast, which we're calling the Outlaw Cast. It's available online. For more information about that, come to beautifuloutlaw.net.